This morning is Trinity Sunday, as you, I'm sure, noticed. It is, it is for us, at the very least, a yearly reminder that we do not merely believe in God, that we are not deists, and that while we are monotheists, we are not monotheists the way Jews or Muslims are monotheists. We are Trinitarians. And there is no wilder, uh, no more interesting, no more glorious, no more mysterious conception of God than that of the triune God of the Christian faith. The other conceptions are frankly boring. Um, In fact, if you could think everything you find interesting in life under the sun... In the cosmos, if you could think it one, those things one by one out of existence until all that you could conceive in your mind was just blank darkness, what would be left would be infinitely more interesting than everything you've thought out of existence. Because what is left is the triune God. Right? So we are Trinitarians. We believe in one God who exists as three persons. Or to put it differently, we believe in three persons who are in their mutually indwelling relations, they just are the one God. Already, I'm sure, heads are beginning to hurt. Let not your heart and let not your head be troubled. We are are not going to try this morning to probe the inner life and being of God, the Trinity in its own existence, though all of eternity will be spent doing that, gazing into this light. We're going to do something easier this morning. We're going to repair to the works of God because there it's more manageable. It's easier uh, to see the hand and the face and the splendor of the triune God more readily in his works. In particular, we're going to look at the Trinity at work in our salvation. And we'll do this from the New Testament lesson, which is from Titus chapter 3. It's one of those dense texts of Paul. You know, there's a lot compacted together in it. It has been called, in fact, the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if someone asked us, what's the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament? It's probably unlikely that we're going to think Titus 3, of course. But this is a remarkably full uh, statement. So I want to make five points from it. They're there on your outline in the bulletin. You can find them there. Uh, When, what, why, how, and the end or the goal. So let's begin with when. Verse 3 speaks of a when, a time when we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, living in malice, it says, being hated, hating one another. It's a very grim picture of the human race under guilt and, and condemnation. But this is not the when that we're going to talk about. It is, however, the bleak backdrop for the when, which shines forth in the text. We were enslaved. Then verse 4 says, verse 4, but when, 
But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. God here, and this is true throughout the New Testament, without any qualifier, should be taken to mean the Father, God the Father. The when, then, is the time. The time in which the Father has sent the Son. The time in which we are in. The time in which God has actually appeared in flesh, in human history, in Jesus Christ. But look at the lovely way, the beautiful way this is stated here. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Kindness. In humans, kindness right, is a fruit of the Spirit working deep in the soil of our souls. We desperately need more of it. In the ancient world, kindness was often considered the highest virtue of a deity or even a human ruler. It's a genuinely underappreciated fruit of the Spirit, but also it's an underappreciated attribute of God himself. Here, the idea of kindness carries with it the idea of God's patient goodness, his generosity, his pitying concern. It is the kindness of God which has appeared in Jesus Christ. And it is the kindness and love of God which leads us to repentance, which grants us new life. This is how God brings us to himself. But he rarely, though he could, argues us into the kingdom. He certainly doesn't coerce us into the kingdom. He certainly doesn't exercise raw authority or pull rank. He kills us, literally, with his kindness, which has come clothed in human form in Jesus Christ. It's quite remarkable. Thus, Jesus can say, and notice the connection our Lord makes here between the Christian ethical calling in the world and God's kindness. And this is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which, Lord willing, we'll get back to next week. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind. Because he is kind. Not just kind in general. Kind Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Because he is kind to such people as we were and often still are. And so you have this picture, right, from Jesus of his heavenly Father who is daily lavishing his kindness on ingrates, right, and rebellious people, evil people. And that kindness, which God perpetually shows to the world, has appeared in a decisive, concentrated, permanent, final form in Jesus Christ when the kindness of God appeared. So important is kindness that Ephesians 2, 7, and let me just put in a word for Ephesians 2, 7, a truly 
underappreciated text. Everybody knows Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? You were saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone boast. Almost everyone knows that. They've heard it. But Ephesians 2, 7, right before that, it says this. God raised us up, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that Now, you know I like to make a big deal out of the so that's, right? But when you see the so that, that's Paul telling you, or the Spirit telling you, to this end. Keep your eyes fixed on this. He did this. He raised us up with Christ so that. Why did God save us and seat us with Christ in the heavens? Turns out it's not any answer that anyone might give you. It is not what you think. Paul says it's in order that. In the coming ages, plural, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What a remarkable sentiment this is. Why did God redeem you? He redeemed you so that for all eternity he could perpetually show his kindness His fatherly goodness to you in Jesus Christ. In the ages to come, this is what he'll be doing. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And God's kindness will be on display and demonstrated toward us in the highest of heavens for all eternity. This is a much neglected attribute of God. But the Father's kindness here is coupled with his love. Notice the text, right? The kindness and love of our Savior appeared. And the word for love is philanthropia. It's basically what we know as philanthropy, which means the love of mankind. God is the great lover of the human race. Often in our human condition, there are lovers of mankind who actually hate individual people, but they love mankind. They're engaged in some great cause for mankind. It's just normal, ordinary people that they despise. They love mankind in the abstract. They hate concrete human beings. God is a lover of mankind who loves mankind in its corporate fullness and in our individuality. He is the great lover of the human race. And it is God's kindness and his love which have now appeared. That is the time wherein the text says. The time of love and kindness. God is love. And what does Paul tell us? Love is kind. So that's the when. The second thing is what. What did God do in this time of love and kindness? Well, that's easy. Verse 5. He saved us. He saved us. That's the whole sermon in three words. He saved us. This is actually the main subject and verb of this very long sentence. Uh, Verses 4 through 7, one sentence in the Greek. But this is the whole text in a nutshell. He saved us. Once And for all, past tense, notice that. Like he didn't get us started on the road to salvation. 
This is not about initial salvation. This is a definitive action which secures your destiny. Salvation in the sense spoken of here is not some kind of cooperative arrangement. It is the mighty intervention of God's love, of God's kindness to an enslaved and deceived people. He saves us in spite of ourselves, right? In the teeth of our sin and our evil and our deception and our malice and our ingratitude. And certainly, as the text continues, not, notice that in the text, not because of righteous deeds we have done. Salvation is not based on your righteous deeds. This is good news. And by the way, all of this in a book, which will, the book of Titus, which will six times, six times exhort you to be zealous for good works. Good works are commanded. They will be evaluated. But it is the heart of the Reformation. And it's the heart of Scripture to grasp that salvation from beginning to end is by grace through faith apart from works. For it is by grace you've been saved. Ephesians 2.8, right? For it is by grace you've been saved. Past tense. Through faith and this not of yourselves. Paul says, notice that. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone boast. He saved us. We shall be found in him, Paul says in Philippians, not having a righteousness of our own based on law keeping, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He saved us. Romans 11. And if it is by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. If you mix grace with works on the matter of salvation, you destroy grace. He saved us, Paul says. 2 Timothy 1, he saved us and called us, not because of anything we have done, but by his own purpose and grace. And just to secure this salvation in God alone, in this text in 2 Timothy 1, Paul roots it all the way back in election. He gave this grace to you in Christ before time began. He saved us once and for all, period. That's the what, and that is also the gospel. So third, why? Why does he save us? What is the, here I mean, what is the basis for his action? This is also simple. You can see it in the text in the middle of verse 5. Because of, or by, his mercy. His mercy. His pity for us in our distress, in our plight. So mercy flows down from this God. This God of kindness and love is the most merciful God. Remember, he's the one who when Moses pleaded with him to show him his glory, passes by Moses and declares to Moses, 
that he was the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Really remarkable, right? Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me your being. Show me your splendor, O God. I want to see you. And the first attribute that God tells Moses is, I'm a God merciful. Mercy is a chief feature of the glory of God. And scripture repeatedly teaches us that God's mercy is over all his works. It repeatedly asserts that he's merciful in all his ways. That his mercies are new every morning. That he's the father of mercies. And thus Jesus can command us, be merciful as your father is merciful. We can reduce the earlier statement from the Sermon on the Mount to be kind, for your Father in heaven is kind. Here, Jesus says, be merciful, for your Father is merciful. Tis mercy all immense, immense, and free. You'll find that in our closing hymn. So that brings me to the fourth point. How? Now, now here... You know, we ask the question, how did God save us? We get more into the, uh, the flowering, the unpacking of the whole Trinity working as one for your redemption. This is why this is a Trinity Sunday text right here. The Father saves us through the Spirit and the Son. You can see that pretty clearly in the middle of this text. He saves us, the text says, through the washing of rebirth and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Right? It's the work of God's Spirit to quicken you, to bring light into your darkness, to move you from enslavement to liberty, right? to raise us out of death into life. The washing of rebirth and renewal is otherwise spoken of in Scripture as our regeneration or our recreation in Christ. This is underway, right? This is broken into your life. But it won't be done because the scripture does not merely come to adjust us or to clean us up or to make us better or to even to repair us, but to remake us. Right? That's what the gift of the Spirit is for. Place us even now in the realm of the new creation. And verse 6 says, the Spirit was given to us, and notice this language, it was poured out on us generously, richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So notice, look carefully at the text, right? In verse 4, God the Father is called Savior. In verse 6, Jesus Christ the Son is called Savior. And in between, in verse 5, the Holy Spirit is seen as the agent of salvation. Thus we have a Trinitarian Savior. This is a beautiful text for the Sunday after Pentecost because it shows us that the Father who saves us by the sending of the Spirit does does so through the exalted Christ. You all know probably, familiar with that very famous sermon that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. And there he speaks of Christ and he says this of Christ, the exalted Christ. He says, exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you see and hear. 
You can hear an allusion in our Titus text back to that Pentecost sermon in the language here of the Spirit being poured out. God is not miserly. He pours the Spirit out profusely, generously. Walk in the Spirit. And He pours it out through the crucified and now raised Christ. And in doing so, the Spirit unites us to that same exalted and glorified Christ so that we might return to the Father's house. In one sense, Trinity Sunday Sunday reminds us, and I've mentioned this before from here, I believe, that we have really only one doctrine in the Christian faith, and it is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Everything else is a footnote. Salvation flows from the Holy Trinity. It is effected through the Holy Trinity to bring you back into communion with the Holy Trinity. So now the picture becomes complete, right? We see the three persons working as one, inseparably, in harmony, in love, and in kindness, and in mercy to effect your renewal. The Father saves us by sending the Spirit through the Son. So the fifth and final point. What's the goal of all this? What's the end of it? Well, verse 7 The result of the gift of the Spirit is that through faith we are justified by grace. This is why this has been called one of the most complete statements in the New Testament. Paul says here that you're justified. This is a legal term, right? It means to be acquitted. It means to be counted as righteous for Christ's sake, clothed in Christ's righteousness. What's going on in justification is that the judgment of the last day which we all face, right? The judgment of the last day has already been passed over you and you've received a not guilty verdict. Which is why that day is not a day of terror for the saints. You've been found not guilty. There is therefore now, right now, no legal condemnation for those who are in Christ. So notice, notice how full, how complete, how balanced Paul is. We have renovation Right? Washing and renewal. That is sanctification in this text. And we have legal standing. Justification by grace. And we need both things, right? We cannot have one without the other. You know why we need both of these things? This is not just like a technical, theological point. We need both of these things because sin does, does twofold damage to you. It has a kind of twofold profile. Sin has, brings guilt and corruption. And justification deals with your guilt, and sanctification deals with your corruption. Right? Justification and sanctification. Legal vindication, personal existential transformation. These things are distinct, but they are inseparable. And we have them side by side in our union with Jesus Christ in this text. So all of this marvelous Great salvation is so that we might become, and again, you can see this in the text, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Right? God did not save us for some merely this worldly, social, cultural, and political end. He saved us for communion with himself in everlasting glory. 
text after text after text after text tells us that. It gives you the great so that. What for of redemption? Which is here put like this. That you might be an heir of the hope of eternal life. Extraordinary. Let's take this in two parts. Heirs and then eternal life. So if we talk about what does the text mean when it calls us heirs? Heirs do not yet have their inheritance, right? Heirs are destined to inherit. What they have, what we have, is a pledge, a foretaste, a down payment of that inheritance. But for now, amidst the sufferings of this age, we live by hope. As heirs, we don't have the full inheritance. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50? He says, flesh and blood, meaning your flesh and blood, as currently constituted, flesh and blood before the bodily resurrection, flesh and blood, he says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So we're heirs. Waiting, tasting, sampling, if you will, the appetizers of our inheritance. The second point here is we are heirs having the hope of eternal life. Again, here, the accent is holy future. This is standard fare when Paul talks about salvation. Yes, we have eternal life begun in us now. But Paul's not talking about that here. He's talking about something possessed by hope. The hope of eternal life. Notice the phrase. So he's talking about consummated life with God in glory. He's talking about bringing to completion what has begun in you. Granting you the full inheritance. That's what's in view here. That's what's in view. The very book of Titus, this same book opens with Paul saying that he labors for the elect in the hope of eternal life. And here in our passage, he says the triune God saves us that we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. In other words, sharing in the eternal life that is the eternal God's own life. This is why we do all that we do. This future glory. This communion with This worship of the Trinitarian Savior. This is why we do all that we do. Paul never tires of reminding us of this. To this end, he says, Paul in another place. To this end, we toil and we strive because we have our hope fixed on the living God. Fight the good fight of faith, he tells Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So in other words, the triune God does all these things to bring you fully, by sight, not by faith, in full possession, not by hope, to bring us to himself. This is the summary of the Bible. It's the summary of the Christian life. Everything begins in the glorious counsel of the Holy Triune God. 
Everything is wrought and affected by the triune God to the end that you might have everlasting, glorious communion with the triune God. It's all Trinity, every point, all the way down. Or it's misshapen. Every Sunday is Trinity Sunday. Every doctrine has a Trinitarian shape. From the Holy Trinity, through the Holy Trinity, onto the Holy Trinity. God saved you to bring you to himself. New creatures in the new creation. Renewed creatures in the renewed cosmos. So that, right, the same love and kindness which saved you, right, might be lavished on us in the ages to come. Hopefully this doesn't sound boring to you, right? The same love and kindness which saved you and lifted you up with Christ into the heavenly places and seated you with him there. That kindness God is determined to display throughout eternity. That's it. That's the purpose of redemption. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian Savior. Amen. Amen.